National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m. we'll get together here on KYMN Radio in Northfield for around 30 minutes to discuss issues in national security. Some weeks we'll cover broad issues. Other weeks we'll take a deep dive into areas around the world you may not have heard much about but might find interesting. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my very best to find experts who can address your topic. So today is one of those days where we're going to dive into a specific area of the world. Uh, The U.S. has been engaged continuously in operations in the Middle East for decades. Over the last six years, U.S. military power has been employed to try to defeat the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. My guest for today's show of national security this week is someone who can help us understand the historical and current situation inside Syria. Bethany May is a Minnesota native, graduate of the University of Minnesota, and earned her commission through the U.S. Army ROTC program at the U of M. Bethany served as an Army intelligence officer from 2010 to 2017. Her final active duty assignment was as a battalion intelligence officer in the 5th Special Forces Group. Between 2015 and 2017, her unit was primarily engaged in Operation Inherent Resolve in Syria, where she saw firsthand how the fight against Salafist jihadism was working. Bethany now works in the private sector, focusing on cyber intelligence at a large multinational corporation headquartered here in Minnesota. She recently completed a Master of Arts degree in War Studies at King's College of London. Her master's thesis focused on how the U.S. military misunderstands irregular warfare as it is practiced today in great power competition, and how this misunderstanding has impacted U.S. Special Operations Forces as a strategic capability. Bethany May lives in Northfield with her husband and children. Bethany, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Me we, too. We've had Syria on, uh, on our minds for a while now, and uh, today we get a chance to talk about it. So let's go ahead and get started. I just told our friends out there in Radioland a, a, a bit about your bio. So let's start at the beginning. You chose service to the United States as an officer in the U.S. Army. How'd you get into intelligence, and how'd you end up supporting the 5th Special Forces Group in the U.S. Army? Yeah, so um, my undergraduate, I focused on international relations, and I was always really interested in kind of like that nexus of how, you know, other nations do conflict with other nations and what goes into that. So intelligence was the obvious choice. Um, And then when you're a a captain, which is kind of like a mid-level officer, you get sent to your branch school. Um, So mine was the intelligence school. And there I decided, you know, I really wanted to go work in the special operations community. They do a little more of like an academic study of how war and those relationships work. And I knew I wanted to be a part of that. So I interviewed. Fifth Group picked me up. And um, Fifth Group covers the whole Middle East, right? So each special forces group is geographically aligned to a different region. And that just happened to be theirs. And they're the ones who happened to pick me. So I was really fortunate. And, you know, within a couple days actually of arriving, we shipped off to go do OIR. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty fast. So right into the flaming uh, flaming kettle. Hey, so so let's uh, let's do a little clarity for our listeners. Uh, a lot of people confuse the the term special forces and special operations yeah. forces. Uh, can you give us a little understanding of what the difference is between those two terms in the in the U.S. military as a 
as a whole? Yeah, no. So um, special operations is like a wide umbrella term, right? And so often you'll see that annotated as SOF or SOF. And within that, especially on the Army side, you have several different entities who do different things. So, you know, kind of at the top, you have, you know, what what um, society kind of refers to as like the sexy ones. So those are the SEALs, you know, the people that you think do like a lot of the action. And then you also have the uh, the U.S. Army Rangers, the 75th Ranger Battalion. So, you know, they're doing very specific on the ground, um, very kinetic focused, short entity, like short duration type missions. And then you have the Green Berets. And um, Green Berets, like I said, are regionally aligned and they focus on something called irregular warfare. So, yes, they do do a lot of those very kinetic direct actions, but they have other specialties. So um, because of that regional alignment, they're required to be experts in that culture. They're required to maintain proficiency in languages associated with that region. And they're supposed to work with um, populations there, too. So in your case, the Special Forces Group, that is the Army Green Berets, yes. and 5th Special Forces Group focusing on the Middle East region. Yes. Okay. So I'm assuming a lot of the uh, uh, the Green Berets that you worked with spoke Arabic? Yeah, or? Arabic, Farsi, Persian. You get a couple Russian speakers in there. Great. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And they tend to be older service members, too. Right. So that's not something. So, you know, very few of them, when you enlist in the Army, um, you, you can't just go right in and say you go to Green Beret tryouts or you know, that selection, right? You have to be in and do something else actually in the Army, another job for a while before you make that decision to go. And then it's a very, you know, demanding multi-year selection process to get to that, that level. And my understanding of uh, Special Forces of the Green Beret uh, earning that tab is that you typically have been through Airborne School first, maybe in, a, in an Airborne, mm-hmm. one of the Airborne divisions. Right. Uh, oh, 82nd or 101st, yeah. typically. Um, typically, but not always. So okay. you can come in really from any other place, you know. Um, I just think sometimes those divisions are larger. Or they have a lot more combat arms, mm-hmm. like infantry or armor soldiers, who then are naturally interested in going to special forces. So, And then a lot of them earn their Ranger tab before they even go through the Q course selection process? Um, most do, but not all. So, okay. yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's start let's focus in now on on Syria. Uh, you, you were in Operation Inherent Resolve. What was that mission, and and when were you deployed into Syria? Yeah, so Operation Inherent Resolve or OIR. Um, this is the counter ISIS mission. So you know the Syrian civil war has been going on since what I think 2011, right? And there's so many multifacets of that. And when people see, you know, violence or bombings on TV about Syria, often there's, you know, different entities who are doing that. That's the Assad regime, who the people of Syria are, um, you know, involved in that civil war against. And then you also have ISIS, right? So OIR, though, specifically, and this is really important, was only meant to counter ISIS operations and al-Qaeda in Syria. And then to make it, you know, a little more complex, because why not, al-Qaeda in Syria actually didn't refer to themselves as al-Qaeda, they called themselves al-Nusra, and then they also continued to change their name, um, you know, every several months or years throughout the conflict, they kept rebranding themselves. Mm-hmm. So OIR um, was really only meant to tactically remove ISIS from their strongholds in throughout Iraq and specifically then in northern Syria. So when I got to fifth group, the initial focus in 2015 actually um, was not being a physical presence in Syria. So we actually went to Jordan. And in Jordan, we helped direct um, uh, training and equipping pre-made militia groups. And then we would send them with, you know, American-backed weapons back into Syria. 
Um, and to help support that, we provide American Air Power, right? Mm-hmm. So American Air Power targeting and doing bombings, um, both, you know, kinetic or, or more strategic targeting, uh, helps support and, like, shape that battlefield environment so that when your militias and your groups can return to Syria, um, you know, they already have an environment that they can work in a little more freely, right? So mm-hmm. you know, we've helped remove some of those obstacles that might be there for them. Okay. And then in 2016, we actually then um, moved back into Syria. So with OIR, um, there were a couple different phases of what this program was supposed to look like, right? So the Obama administration was kind of trying to figure out a way, a politically savvy way, where they could take care of ISIS. And if you remember, um, this is coming after Libya. And Libya had not gone well, right? right you know, right. we international coalition removes Gaddafi, you know, helps enable the people to remove Gaddafi. Uh, significant amounts of bombing, and then what? You know, the country's overtaken mm-hmm. by jihadist militia groups. Right. So, you know, the international community doesn't really have a stomach to want to do this again. So the Obama administration was trying to find a creative way that was palatable for everyone, and their first um, their first try was this train and equip program, and honestly, it wasn't successful. Right. So then the second round, you know, which we were part of, was to actually move into uh, North Syria, and there are there are other, um, you know, operations happening in other parts of Syria, but the one I was involved in was mostly in the north. So this time, instead of training a uh, Arab militia, we instead identified that actually the Syrian Kurdish people, um, who have their own preset militias, were the best tactical partner to help defeat ISIS. Okay, so you went and partnered up with them in that irregular warfare concept and supported the. The Syrian Kurds. Right. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about what conditions were like on the ground in northern Syria when you were there? And, and what did your unit's kind of day-to-day operational tempo look like? Yeah. What, what you can talk about. <laughs> so it's not always as exciting as I think it sounds like or as, you know, people make it think, right? You know, you, you still bring your computers. You're still doing PowerPoints and answering email even in north Syria. Um, you know, you're still attending meetings, right? You know, especially as a staff officer. So, um and we actually were living in a bombed-out industrial facility. So that was kind of a unique situation. Um, so by the time the staff, right, you know, it's so like the advisors to the command team. So by the time we arrived in country, there were already some pretty significant tactical operations underway. So in North Syria, this is considered like the bread bowl of the country. It's very agrarian. It's rural. You know, there aren't – there are um, cities, but they're like small – towns right you know in the in the region and everything is very much focused on grain supply um so by the time we arrived one of these major towns in the north had been a significant isis stronghold and there was a very uh, large operation underway to retake it and this town was called manbij mm-hmm. um and so by the time the staff arrived that operation was underway and actually the kurds were such efficient fighters that they were able to clear the city room by room house by house block by block. I mean, oh. significant, significant human toll, too, with, yeah. again, you know, U.S. air power. And um, they removed ISIS in a matter of weeks, and we thought it could potentially take months. So then we were scrambling to figure out, you know, what do you do when there is a void, right? You want mm-hmm. to prevent an insurgency. ISIS behaved as a state. Mm-hmm. They behaved as a, a form of government. And when that's removed, um, you don't want there to be an insurgency. You want to create a climate where people can move back into their homes and have normal life again. So that was very much our focus. Um, 
And so, you know, to do that, you have to work with local governance quite a bit because you want to create a legitimate government where people feel safe. Mm-hmm. So um, through that, then we actually enabled uh, a lot of um, our partners, right? So we would we would act as like the eyes and ears of other U.S. federal entities who can't be there, like Department of State, USAID. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to help provide food. People need food to have a stable life. So... Um, in Manbij, some things that we we were contributing to, ISIS left behind IEDs everywhere. Right. In the thousands. Um, they put them in people's homes. You so, know, they, they wanted to hurt people. So it was booby-trapped all over. Everywhere. You yeah. know, there, there were uh, terrible stories of families moving back into their homes and going to sit down on their bed and their bed would explode. Mm. Um, you know, there were booby traps left for children in the street. Uh, Manbij was, you know, frankly... American air power is very good at destroying things. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of destruction. Um, so to help people move back in in an orderly manner, what we helped do is we organized neighborhood teams and we trained people how to defuse these IEDs. And they were very simple IEDs, mm-hmm. right? They weren't complex, they weren't large, but they could still maim and kill. So we organized groups of women. And this is significant because these women had just, you know, lived essentially under house arrest for years with ISIS. They couldn't leave their homes. They were, you know, completely devalued in that society. And instead we empowered them. We gave them jobs. And they were part of an official, you know, uniformed unit that would move through neighborhoods and defuse IEDs. So when everyone moved back into their neighborhood... They found the IEDs, they would alert their local, you know, representative for this group, and then they would come and clear the neighborhood, right? So we're providing empowerment for people. There's a system, so there's, you know, legitimacy for government. Um, People are employed, and, you know, we're bringing communities back together. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, people are resilient, right? So we're trying to help make these communities see how resilient they are. And they already know that. So, for example, one day we went into Manbij, um, you know, and I'll be honest, I expected it to be this, you know, desolate wasteland. And in a sense it was because of the destruction. Mm-hmm. But people were also living their normal lives. So in the town square where, you know, a couple of weeks ago, ISIS had been essentially crucifying people and leaving them there. Yeah. There were children playing soccer and buying ice cream from a local vendor. There was a, a bakery that was reopened. And the owner was inviting us in and giving us samples of, you know, his baked goods and trying to tell us, you know, take these to Obama, bring these to Washington, like show the American people like we're back, Mm -hmm. we're here. So those are things you really want to focus on is rebuilding those those elements of normal life. That's extraordinary resiliency. So two two things come to my mind as you're telling this story. Uh, One is that there's there's I think in a in a counterinsurgency fight where the U.S. has special forces in assisting uh, local communities, uh, as they defeat the threat, mm-hmm. there, there's, there's something psychologically very important about the local people achieving the victory, not the U.S. achieving yes. the victory and handing things over to them. Absolutely. They've earned that through blood and sweat and tears. Yep. And now you help them reestablish peace and security and an economic foundation for their community is that kind of what yes no i mean and, and there is you know there's added complexities here too right so you know isis was comprised of a lot of foreigners mm-hmm. but isis was also comprised of local arab sunni people mm-hmm. who bought into this ideology and turned against their neighbors and killed their neighbors right and there was you know a widespread admission that everyone knew our neighbors who are isis are still here and now all of a sudden they've taken off they've shed their fighter garb 
and suddenly had nothing to do with it. And so you have to start making choices. Are you going to forgive your neighbor and decide to still continue living next to each other? Or are you going to exact revenge, hmm. extra judicial revenge? Right. And that was something else that we were concerned about. And especially, um, as you know, the, the Kurds and the Arabs were choosing to live side by side, even though they have their own historical grievances against each other. Yeah. And that was, you know, something else that we had to be um, aware of. Right. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. We're speaking with former U.S. Army Intelligence Officer Bethany May, and we're discussing the current situation in Syria. So, Bethany, could you tell us a little bit about Salafist jihadism and maybe specifically about the Islamic State? Yeah, so um, I'm not an expert in, you know, Islamic theology and ideology, but, you know, I'll give you my take of it and especially how it relates to ISIS. So Salafist jihadism is um, at its essence like a a political religious ideology. Um, Its main foundation is that it promotes that uh, the Islamic world will progress only through regression, which seems counterintuitive, right? So you need they, they want everyone to regress to a state of life like the first generations of Muslims. Um, they're extremely conservative, and all they want to do is reunite the Islamic world, and that's called the Ummah. Mm-hmm. And, um, but their, their hallmark feature, though, is that their defined emphasis on this can only be achieved through violent struggle. And that includes against other Muslims who don't adhere to their ideology. Yeah. I think most people don't realize that like Islamic State killed far more Muslims than they did uh, oh, completely. Uh, Americans or, or, or Christians in general. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and other religious minorities, too. Yeah. 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 So, um, and, and with ISIS, though, so and this is very specific, too. ISIS went farther than Al-Qaeda did. So mm-hmm. Al-Qaeda, yes, like Al-Qaeda is bad. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. ISIS dared to do things that um, actually brought rebuke from Al-Qaeda. Yeah. That's that's not insignificant. I mean, if if you're willing to be so violent that Al-Qaeda says you're too violent, you need to back off, then there's something, you know, very distinctly different about that. So how did the Islamic State kind of initially gain control over areas in Syria and Iraq? I mean, that happened very quickly, I remember, back in, was it 2014 time frame? Yeah, so it, it did happen very quickly. Um, so, you know, part of that was the, the absence of U.S. forces leaving in 2012. And, and, you know, some of these things actually, if we can almost go back to what makes ISIS a little different, a lot of these um, foundational beliefs had already been brewing, mm-hmm. you know, in some sense since uh, even the 90s. Um, and, and some of them even predate al-Qaeda. But with al-Qaeda, and because of al-Qaeda's movements, especially internationally, that rise in ideology was ready to go as soon as there was a power vacuum. So even prior to 2014, and this is important to understand the ideas that then propelled that tactical movement across Iraq and Syria. So ISIS was essentially founded ideologically by someone called Zarqawi, who was um, bin Laden's deputy. And Zarqawi's thought, and this actually, again, his ideas were so bad that this put him at odds with bin Laden. He wanted to cause a civil war between the two main sects in Islam, Sunni and Shia. Yeah. And he wanted to ignite a civil war that'd be so bad that would bring about the apocalypse. And that he believed the apocalypse would happen in Syria in a random rural village in North Syria. And that's where, um, you know, according to Islamic thought, that's where the final battle on earth will be fought between Jesus and Satan. And his sole goal on earth was through ISIS 
was to establish the caliphate, draw a line in the sand. If you're a real Muslim, you will join us. If not, then you're the enemy, and we're going to bring about the end of the earth <laughs> here and now in Syria. So that, that call was very powerful. Right. And that absolutely helped propel their takeover in Iraq and Syria because it brought about those local people who were willing to buy in mm-hmm. either out of belief or just survival. Wow. So we know that over the last couple of years, uh, Russia has made significant investment of resources into Syria uh, to, to continue to back Bashar al-Assad. Now, there, there's been a long history of, uh, of connections between the old Soviet Union yeah. and the Assad family. Uh, why do you think Syria in the modern day is so important to the Russian geostrategic calculation? You know, what, what do the Russians hope to gain by continuing to back Assad, uh, even though there's been this long civil war and the country's been torn apart by, you know, the fighting with the Islamic State? Yeah, I know that's a good question. I think there have definitely been times in the last couple of years where Putin probably thought he made a mistake backing Assad. But overall, I think it's um, actually been a pretty decent success for him. So, like you said, you know, there's historic ties going back to the 60s. The USSR backed um, the rise of uh, Assad's father. So the Assad dynasty was only brought about because of the Soviets. Um, And that's important because Putin's writing a a wave of nationalism and bringing it back thoughts about, like, you know, the quote-unquote good old old days Mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union, although that's fairly debatable. So... Anytime something domestically does not go well in Russia, Putin extends outward. He invades Georgia, mm-hmm. um, Ukraine. He gets involved in Syria. And those are all meant to you know, garner domestic support for him. So sure. really, Syria has been this great boon. He's um, reclaimed strategic naval base at Tartus. Yeah. He's re- essentially made himself strategic air bases in central Syria where mm-hmm. he can refuel. Um it's allowed him to empower the oligarchs uh, who own mercenary groups. And he essentially just shuttles mercenaries through Ukraine um, into Syria and then to other parts of the world. It's a training camp for him. And that's the, that's <clears throat> the Wagner group, I yeah, think, Yeah, the right? Wagner group, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and and as, as Russia moves into that that space, then that extends their reach through the Mediterranean into Europe. It It's very uncomfortable for uh, NATO and um, a lot of Eastern European countries, right? So, But also that gives him a bartering chip. So it's not even if he's going to use that space. It's can he leverage it in negotiations with something else? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're exerting their influence too, and the Russian influence. So, so let, me, let me piggyback on that, on that question a little bit because there's something I want to bring up after we talk about this question. So what role does, does the nation of Turkey play in all this have they have they yeah. overly complicated the situation oh, in absolutely. syria oh, uh, or is the yeah. role they played critical in some way no they absolutely do complicate it so turkey is a nato nation mm-hmm. right so they're they're our ally and we have a strategic base there at insurlik which has been there since i think before the kennedy administration yeah um and and originally in the 50s and 60s in the cold war that strategic base was a deterrent for russia not mm-hmm. to encroach any further um on europe uh, which is a little bit ironic, considering now you know Russia is essentially right, right there. Um, Turkey has their own nationalistic agenda. So, right, so Erdogan is absolutely—he wants to remake himself like Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey. Right. And he sees himself in this role. He's um, made Turkey go from a very secular state, and now they've become a very religious state. Mm-hmm. He's empowered a lot of um, essentially radicals in his own nation to help bolster him. So. Also, we have to remember, 
Turkey hates the Syrian Kurds. Right. And technically, the Syrian Kurdish militias, not the ones that we helped, we helped the Syrian Democratic Forces, but other elements of um, Syrian militias have been at war with Turkey. They've actually killed thousands of Turks. Right. Um, and, you know, likewise, historically, the Turks have also killed them. So Turkey's role in this, um, so first of all, I always found it a little interesting that so many foreign fighters could easily fly in to Turkish airports and then just magically come across the border into Syria. And, and join the Islamic State. And join state. the Islamic State. Yeah. But um, Turkey has a vested interest in not allowing the Kurds to gain control over uh, that swath of northern Syria, the historic Kurdish land. Mm -hmm. So um, as part of the Kurds' bargaining chip is they wanted to rejoin that. They wanted to rejoin their ancestral land. And I think there was some hope that because they um, defeated the Islamic State essentially for us, that they were going to do that. Turkey wants nothing to do with it and actually invaded right. north Syria under the pretext of we're here to move out ISIS. But the underlying context was, no, we're actually here to create a buffer zone because we want this land as part of old Turkey and we don't want the Kurds to occupy their land or get close to us anymore. Yeah, It's very contentious. So all that said, if you consider the uh, the competition between Moscow and uh, between Putin and, and, and Erdogan, uh, we've seen Russia sort of encircle Turkey uh, yeah. over the last few years with these investments in Syria. Uh, Russians' role, uh, Putin's role, really, in, in settling the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, short yeah. war that just happened, uh, to the detriment of Erdogan's position in the region, uh, to his east. So it's a, it's kind of an interesting geostrategic situation we see developing there uh, for one of our NATO allies. Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways, I think Erdogan might have <laughs> overplayed his hand a little bit with Putin. Yeah. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. We're speaking with former U.S. Army Intelligence Officer Bethany May, and we're discussing the current situation in Syria. So let's put you on the National Security Council staff, Bethany. You're, you're, the, you're President Biden's advisor on Syria. How do you frame the overall situation? You, know, you can go back to being an intelligence officer for a minute. Frame the overall situation for the president, and what might you advise him to do? This yeah, is a very complicated question, is. I know. And there's a lot of different um, you know, ways you can look at this. So I think there's the theoretical, right? Like, in a perfect world, Assad would be held accountable for his crimes. You know, he, he'd be removed from power. He'd brought, you know, be brought before the National Criminal Court, or he'd end up like Gaddafi, you know, being killed in the streets by his own people mm -hmm. as retribution. Um, but this isn't a perfect world, and that's not going to happen, most likely. Um, so I think right now, what what I think a lot of people have forgotten about is the refugee crisis, right? Especially the Syrian one, and how many displaced people there are, not just internally in Syria, but also who have risked everything to cross the Mediterranean or try to find refuge in other countries. Um, this is also create instability. There are so many refugees in Jordan right now, a very tiny nation right. who doesn't have a huge GDP and relies on a lot of aid from the U.S., who mm -hmm. also tries to keep the balance in the Middle East. Um, they are already hosting millions of refugees from Palestine right. who've been there for generations, and now they're hosting more from Syria. There is a huge risk that that could overload their infrastructure or you know, make them domestically weaker. Um, even uh, and additionally from refugees, we now risk that there is an entire generation of children who could be radicalized or trafficked. That's going to create another problem for the next generation. Right. So I would say focusing on what it would take to be able to create a space where you could either repatriate those people 
or work to negotiate with, you know, frankly, the forces that maybe are making this difficult, Russia and Turkey, mm-hmm. to find a solution. And it's not going to be a perfect solution. Someone's right. going to be left out. Yeah. But. Yeah. So it's going to be a heck of a cha- strategic challenge over yeah, the next few years. And, and the Middle East is, uh, has been a challenge for the United States for, for decades. But now with uh, all of the instability that we're seeing uh, caused by lots of different forces, not only the political climate with the uh, Syrian civil war, but kind of what led to a lot of the decisions by people to leave. Uh, they'd had m- massive, really horrible droughts uh, in Syria heading up to that point. So, right. So I mean, plus 40 years of the Assad regime. Right. You know, um, it, it, they're already torturing people. It was already a police state mm-hmm. before ISIS even arrived. And then it became more of a police state during the Syrian civil war. And I mean, really, the straw that broke the camel's back for the Syrian people um, was when some children who had graffitied an an, you know, a building, some anti-Assad message when they were tortured and killed by police. Right. That's what did it. So, frankly, even for the Syrian people, a lot of them, they cared about ISIS, but they cared more about Assad. Right. That was our focus. Exactly. Yeah. So let's go back to something we were talking about earlier, uh, where you... Uh, sort of gained the support of uh, of the women in these villages in and around uh, Manbij. Have you heard about the uh, upcoming movie Ashley's War? I have. So that is that's going to be released sometime in the not too distant future. But it's based on the concept of those uh, cultural support teams. Can you tell our yeah. audience what those CSTs were and how they functioned in Syria? Yeah. So I was on a part of those. Um, but I did have friends who were on CSTs um, with the 75th Ranger Regiment. So prior to, what, I think 2013, 2014, there used to be something in place called the Combat Exclusion Policy. And this is U.S. law that said that women could not be on certain units or w- hold certain roles in the U.S. military because they had an increased likelihood of seeing direct combat or the entire position was only meant to see direct combat. And that's a whole nother discussion. Um, but so President Obama rescinded this. But actually, I'm sorry, prior to that, when we were involved in Iraq and Afghanistan, these are very patriarchal, conservative societies. Mm-hmm. Um, it was starting to become obvious that we were missing a huge part of the population, and those were women. And when you're trying to fight an insurgency or rebuild a nation, you can't leave out part of the population. Right. So from an intelligence gathering perspective, from even just creating buy-in, to just even, you know, they're very much a huge unknown. Mm-hmm. So you can't just have these male units. When you think about two of these units, you have guys who are they're working out a lot, they're huge, they're wearing a ton of body armor, they look imposing to anyone, but especially if you are a woman in a conservative patriarchal society who isn't supposed to interact with men outside your family. So um, creating like a, a mini selection and recruiting women who um, would be able to meet the, the physical training standards with these units and then would um, integrate with them and then move out to target locations. So um, they would, you know, assist them at least even just as a female presence with that. So they would, so the women, the the cultural support teams were women that would go in and engage with women in those societies, talk with them, find out what's going on, build relationships with them. And and also specifically to move with certain um, special operations elements. Okay. Yep. So, and then in Syria, actually... We didn't have that, but um, at the time, the women in our unit were myself and the civil affairs officer, mm-hmm. and um, we did go out and liaise. Actually, there was an interesting movement 
Um, and again, very interesting for a Sunni Arab culture who had just lived under ISIS. There were actually Sunni Arab families who wanted their teenage daughters to go train with militias because they wanted to exact revenge on ISIS. Wow. And they heard that there were American special forces in the area and that they wanted to entrust, this is wild, they wanted to entrust their daughters to be trained by who they deemed the best. So we did go out and meet with some of them, um, and it was still very nascent, but just even those facts alone were, were very huge metrics about how this was going, you know, and, and what the population really did think of, hmm. of ISIS and what they wanted for their communities. So let me throw the, this question at you. We'll change tact just a little bit. What do you think the American people don't understand about the strategic significance of Syria and why it matters to the United States? Yeah, so this is this is hard because, right, you know, Syria's over there. It's it's kind of abstract. You know, it's far away from us. And I think, frankly, people are have grown tired of seeing images of violence and refugees. And at a certain point, you just don't really feel it anymore. It mm-hmm. becomes normalized. So it is hard to think about why this is important to us. But there's a lot of reasons why Syria should matter. So I already mentioned those displaced people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why that's an issue for our allies in the region who are hosting them. Why that's an issue... Um, for a next generation to become radicalized and why that's an issue that can be trafficked by jihadist groups. Um, We've talked a little about the Russian-Iranian presence, and and Iran is actually very involved as ground forces in Syria. Mm -hmm. Um, Supporting Hezbollah, right? Right, and so actually they've even, um, there's some evidence they've trafficked in poor Shias from Afghanistan to be their foot soldiers because they're expendable in the region. Mm. I think there's even been some in Nagorno-Karabakh, too. Okay. Um, so we need to care about this strategically because they have huge influence there. And so what are we going to do to help, um, you know, wane their influence? We should care about making sure the Iraqi government is strong in the face of that Iranian presence and what's going on with their neighbors. Um, you know, Syria is a hugely complex state with a lot of different ethnic groups in it. Yeah. You know, we should be paying attention. A lot of these ethnic groups actually are ancient you know, they've been there for thousands of years. They still speak ancient languages. We should be caring about what happens to other populations. You know, in Iraq, it was the Yazidis. Right. Um, similar things, not on as great of a scale, are happening in Syria. We should be caring about the Gulf states who are funding their own militias. Syria's become a, a battlefield for a proxy war. Yeah. At one point, I believe we counted over 30 known large entities that had an invested presence in Syria. And I won't go into who those were, but it's, you know, even in 2016, it was the battlefield for world powers to start to jockey and figure out their issues. It almost makes the uh, Lebanese civil war look like, uh, you know, kindergarten level stuff. That's how complicated it's become. Yeah. So we have just a few minutes left. Are there any final points about Syria or the, the broader Middle East you'd like to discuss with us today? Um, yeah, so we need to, to start realizing that we can't just have like a haphazard approach to our Middle East or Syria policy, right? So, you know, every four or eight years we change our policies, our national policies. We've made it politicized. Mm-hmm. We've politicized our approach to all of this because, you know, politicians are afraid to commit. They don't want pictures of Americans coming back in body bags. Mm-hmm. Um they, you know, do or don't want to work with certain allies about things. There's other pressures that have to happen. And I also think, too, that Americans need to understand that you need to balance soft and hard power. So soft power being diplomacy and aid and other diplomatic leverages. Both are equally good 
in different situations. And in serious case, hard power is absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely necessary. Yeah. But there's still that role for soft power. And so we can't keep flitting back and forth between administrations and whatever it is they think their view of this is. At some point, I think I need to get somebody on here with us uh, to talk about uh, soft, hard, sharp, and smart power applications uh, using the tools of national power because uh, these these topics keep coming up in our national security discussions here on this radio show. Well, Bethany, thank you for being our guest today well, on National Security me. This Week. This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. Uh, folks, we'll be back next Wednesday, February 3rd at 9 a.m. with another edition of National Security This Week. I'm John Olson, and I'm your host. We're broadcasting from KYMN Radio in Northfield on AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. In the meantime, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio, and I'll do my very best to find experts who can address that topic. Have a fantastic Wednesday and a great finish to your week. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. The quarterback club in.